Well, we've been encouraging to read through the scriptures all throughout this year, and we've done that by going through the book of Mark in two different series. The first series is what's called A Light on Your Path, where you're thinking about how the scriptures light your way ahead of you. This, this second one, From Dusk Till Dawn, really is more about are we willing to let things become lit up in us, the shadowy places in us, to be able to see what's keeping us from the path. And, uh, and so as we go towards the, uh, the culmination of, of this series through the entire book of Mark all the way into Easter, uh, this morning we're asking a, a, a question. When is a baby donkey more powerful than a charging steed? And the answer is when it carries a vision of beauty and goodness and truth. From the Word of God, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. Hear God's Word this morning. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go to a village in front of you. Immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door beside, outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying that colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let it go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches and they had, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a, 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 a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came, he found nothing but leaves, for it was the season, was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer? For all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. 
And when evening came, they went out of the city. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Father, create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2009, a very unassuming and shy middle-aged woman stepped out onto the stage of a pop show, a show that would, uh, was really a talent show for, for budding young pop artists. And she astounded the world, singing that great, beautiful aria from Les Miserables. I dreamed a dream. Susan Boyle showed the world what song was in her. To look at her and to see the, the, the sense of incongruence between what that setting was all about, finding young, sparkly talent. And here is this woman who steps out a little timid, a little shy, with, with, with people looking at her appearance and, and, and thinking, what an ordinary picture here. And then to hear the song, the extraordinary in the late 1800s, a, a man named Charles Eliot, uh, he was a young boy at the time, and he had a, a birthmark on his face. And learning that doctors could do nothing for him, he lamented to his mother, and she said, become a great soul, and no one will notice your face. There's nothing flashy about Palm Sunday. There's nothing extraordinary about the triumphal entry. And yet here is a picture worth a thousand words of beauty and goodness and truth, of something transcendent in the ordinary. Here is the ultimate picture of transcendent made visible in an ordinary human life a picture of the hidden architecture of the original creation, a, a sound of a song, a beauty that transcends, a song that we don't always sing well, but a song that reflects, that echoes with eternity. This morning, let's take a look at how we are called to reflect the image and nature of God, to sing the song. There's the singers and there's the song. We don't always sing it the way we could, but there is the song. And when we pursue beauty and goodness and truth, that hidden architecture begins to become visible again. Jesus makes the invisible, visible. Now, how, how, do we, how do we become the great soul that, uh, that Charles Eliot, Eliot's mother uh, spoke of? Charles would go on to, to, to turn Harvard College from its you know, sort of provincial reputation to an international, the international premier research university that we know today. How do we become great souls? Well, 
it's at least important to get a picture, a picture of glory, of that hidden architecture, a sound of the song through beauty and goodness and truth. First, beauty. Beauty makes visible this hidden architecture. Beauty makes the song sound, resonate. Beauty invites us into the song. It invites us into the song. It just, it speaks for itself. You know, you, you, don't, have to, you don't have to make an argument for beauty, right? Like if you're on the beach, uh, I'm glad you're not on the beach this week. Thanks, thanks for being here this morning, by the way. Um, extra credit, extra gold stars for your charts in the back. But if you're on the beach and, and it's 5.30, and you don't have to run up and down and tell people to put down their books and bocce balls and look at the sunset. You don't have to argue for it. You don't have to convince them. Just look at the, the phones and selfie sticks come out. I mean, it's just amazing. Just all of a sudden it's 5.30 and, and here is this the, the light beginning to, to, to be bent towards the red and, and the whole spectrum coloring the clouds on the horizon. And we're invited in to a place of peace. We're invited in to beauty. Beauty speaks for itself. Verse nine, it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the, world, of the Lord. Blessed is he who, who brings the kingdom. What are they seeing? What beautiful picture are they seeing? What picture is worth a thousand words here? What are they seeing? They're seeing a picture of shalom, a picture of ultimate peace, a picture of beauty that says God is for real, wanting to be in relationship with his creation, wanting to restore it to its original beauty, wanting, wanting to bring to human life what we long for, what, what the Germans call sensuk, this, 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 this idea that, that there is something transcendent and meaningful about human life, that God is wanting to bring peace, shalom, ultimately. You know, in, in, during the Second Iraq War, one of the phrases that was thrown around regularly was not that, that we would win the war, but that we, could we win the peace? There was no question that we would win the war with, with uh, bunker-busting bombs. There was, there was no question that we could win the war with, with all of our armament, but could we win the peace when we deposed the regime? Could we, could we fill the vacuum? Could there be a peace in that region again? Zechariah 9 is a picture of someone who is winning the peace, not just winning the war. This picture, almost really ridiculous picture of humility. <laughs> not not uh, Napoleon, uh, who was described as the spirit of the age. I've just seen the spirit of the age on horseback. You know, you've, you, that famous picture of Napoleon where he's, you know, he's, you know, he's riding this great steed. No, this is a picture of humility. A baby donkey, the foal of a donkey, the pony of a donkey. And here is a man disproportionate to what he's riding. Coming in, and it's a picture 
of someone who, who comes not to vanquish his opponent, but someone who comes to vanquish our common enemy of evil, that we may be one to the peace. And that picture invites us in, invites us into the hidden architecture, invites us into the song. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zechariah 9 says, shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim, away the horses, the war horses of Jerusalem. Let the battle bow be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule, his rule will extend from sea to see. What is the picture, ultimate picture of beauty that we see this week? What is that ultimate picture? It's a picture that is just <laughs> so uh, amazing in its contrast. It's a picture of the cross, a picture of the one who created all things, looking out completely broken by how broken it is, and yet saying, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. In an age when people are wanting to reinvent beauty and goodness and truth, when they're wanting to reinvent themselves, when they're hungry for a sense of transcendence, for a sense of meaning, when they're anxious to create something meaningful in their life. When there's such accusations leveled at the institutional church, we're invited into the song of the church, into the beauty of the church. Can you think of a greater image, a greater picture worth a thousand words than the creator of the universe who needs only an ordinary weak moment to bring this extraordinary contrast, to level at us, not wrath, but peace. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. This is the, the central picture of the Christian faith, of the one who, who became lowly that we may be lifted up. What a beauty. What a picture. And we're invited into that, that song once again. Well, how do we make this picture visible ourselves? How do we, ordinary people that we are, Susan Boyles, Charles, Charles Elliott's, how do we sing the song? How do we reflect this picture of the hidden architecture of transcendence? Well, we make, visible by line, we make it visible by lining up with the good. We've talked about how beauty invites us in, right? It makes us insiders. Beauty invites us in. You don't have to make an argument for it. Beauty invites us to become insiders, to hear the song. Good, the good, is our part in reflecting that outward towards outsiders, that when we order our lives around this, this beautiful story, when we learn to sing the song, however we may sing it, we begin to show the world that hidden architecture through our 
orderly lives and community. Not perfect, but hopeful. Not, not wrinkle-free, but making progress. Ordered lives influence outsiders. Verse 19, Jesus is cursing this fig tree. What's going on there? He says, may no one ever eat from you ever again. What's going on there? It's strange because, you know, here's the creator of the universe and he sees the tree in leaf and uh, you would think he would know that, um, that it's not the season for figs. Uh, the, the scripture says it's not the season for figs. And yet he goes expecting to be able to eat something. Well, what's going on here is that, that, that these figs, that certain kinds of fig trees in that region would produce buds that were edible. And they would show that this is going to be a tree that, that's going to bear fruit. So Jesus goes to this tree and he finds that there are no buds on it. If it's in full leaf, it, it should have buds on it. And, 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 and so he, he shows that this is a tree that's not going to bear fruit. Well, Jesus walks around and he can, he can take any ordinary thing and create an amazing message out of it. He, he's symbolizing Israel, who is not ordering their life around their first love, who is not reflecting the glory of God through their orderly lives, even, even through a sense of, of hope, even in the broken and stumbling ways. They're not ordering their lives around God. And, and you know, another interesting part of this is that, that the fig tree is one of two trees, the olive and the fig, that were called the people's tree. The people's tree. That means that it doesn't matter who owns this tree, if you're walking by, it's almost like gleaning. You know, they don't, they don't um, a field isn't harvested all the way to the edges so that people who are passing by can, can glean from the edge of the field. It's like that. A fig tree and an olive tree are both called the people's tree. It doesn't matter who owns it. The people, anybody want, walking by are free to take the fruit of that tree. And Jesus is saying, my... My people of Israel are supposed to bear fruit for the nations. They're supposed to bear, be, be an influence to the, the nations through their ordering their, selves, their lives around, around God. But they're not producing fruit, not even the buds of fruit. In the same way, Jesus goes to the temple. The next day he goes to the temple and he clears it out. He clears it out. He's angry. Why is he angry? Is he angry because people aren't behaving? Is he angry because uh, of the corruption of the system? Is he angry because uh, people are coming for Passover and they, they, they're not bringing their animals with them? They're going to have to buy uh, a, an animal to sacrifice there and they're being exploited? You know, the, 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 uh, the, the court of the Gentiles where he turned over the tables was three football fields by five football fields long. Huge. It's a grand marketplace. And it was a place where people from every nation would come through. I mean, people from all walks of life would, would, would come and, and trade there. And listen 
closely. Think of the, the, the fact that Jesus is upset that Israel isn't bearing fruit for the nations, that the people's tree is not bearing fruit. Now listen to what he says in, in verse 17. My house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. For the nations. Jesus is upset about the corruption. He's upset about the exploitation. But he's mostly upset that the people of God are not ordering their lives in such a way that influences the world. That was, that was the call. That was the plan. Not to win arguments, but to order lives in such a way that they make compelling the hidden architecture of human life. They make that invisible visible. They begin to sing the song. However poorly they may, however off key they may sing it, they're singing the song that echoes with eternity. Pascal, great mathematician, philosopher, French, said, make religion attractive. Make good men wish it were true and then show that it is worthy of reverence because it really understands human nature. Boy, do we need all the ordered lives, the attraction that we can get in an age when we're just simply trying to win the next argument, the next battle, the next internet dust up. Jesus is saying, make the visible good. Make, make, make the good visible in your lives by ordering your lives around the good. You're invited into the song. Sing it however poorly. Showing the transcendent order of the song. And finally, well, how do we do this? How do we become uh, singers of the song? How do we learn to sing it well? How do we learn to, to, to sing the song that God has given us to sing? How do we do that? How do we reflect the image and nature of God? How do we, how do we write larger the hidden blueprint or architecture of human life? Well, the truth the truth guides us to train, not try, right? You hear Yoda here in the background here. There is no try, right? There is no try. Training in righteousness, training in truth, failing forward, even going down flat on your face, doing the impossible. You see this in the last week and the previous week. You see people incredulous about Jesus' teaching. They assumed that there was a hierarchy, that there were people who could live, you know, lead righteous lives on their own. They assumed that. And so when the rich, rich young ruler that we looked at last week is being called out by Jesus as, as building, as, as climbing a ladder that's leaning against the wrong building, his disciples are saying, well, who can be saved? And he's saying, look, it's not, it's not about getting it right on your own power. It's about training according to the hidden architecture of the original design before the fall to reflect the image and nature of God.
You know, anything that's worth doing is worth doing poorly. <laughs> practice, practice, practice. Verse, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, Is it not written? Is it not written? You see, he's going back to the scriptures again and again. He came to fulfill, not to put it down. In cursing the tree, he wasn't saying, okay, all that old stuff. I mean, he's saying that the whole program of, of, sort, of, uh, of sort of trying on your own, trying and trying and trying and failing on your own is gone. He's writing the covenant on your heart to give you the power, to give you the conviction, to give you the deep desire for beauty and goodness and truth. And he's giving us a word. And it says in verse 18, it says that people are astonished at it, that this is impossible. Last week, it is impossible except with God. All things are possible with God. It's the idea that God can change a life, that we can train in righteousness, not to be better than, not to feel good about ourselves because of, we, of, of our efforts or our progress, but to say, blessed is the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of our father, David. Blessed is he who did it for us to reflect not our own efforts, but to reflect the power of God in the grace of God in an ordinary human life. You see, that message is getting lost and lost and lost because we, we forget that that we need to start with beauty. Start with a song. Train in such a way that your ordered lives just simply reflect that there's something hidden in the, there, there's a hidden architecture to life. And let people want it. Let people be astonished at your life. Don't go out to win the argument. Go out to win the soul. Because you are being won over yourself. I think of this, uh, that movie, The Karate Kid. Uh, that, they remade it more recently, right? I, I didn't see it. I don't know if it's, the remake is any good. But I just remember that original one where, um, where Daniel-san, Daniel-san, right? And Mr. Miyagi. And he wants, he's gotten beat up and he wants to, he, he wants to train. He wants to become uh, you know, an expert in karate. So he seeks out Mr. Miyagi, who becomes his mentor, and he, he thinks he's being sold a bill of goods, right? I mean, all of a sudden, like, he's waxing the floor. He's waxing the car. He's painting, you know, up and down. Wax on, wax off. You remember that? Wax on, wax off. He's going, wax on, wax off. What is this? And then he begins to make the connection between the parts of training and the art of karate. Now, maybe, maybe reading the Bible hasn't, hasn't sunk in yet. Maybe getting up every day and sort of being in this routine has felt mundane already within the first quarter. Maybe you've given up several times. Fail forward. Try and try is not the program. Training, training, training. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Frederick Buechner 
as we think about the idea that you're going to the scriptures, as you think about the idea that there's this hidden architecture, as you're thinking about the idea that, that you can get at that blueprint through the scriptures, through the doctrine, through understanding what is it saying by, by examining it, by reflecting on it, by journaling on it, by applying it to your life. You know, you can begin to say, well, I've heard this before. I understand that. It begins to become sort of rote to you. This is what Beekner says about that. He says, no matter how fancy a doctrine sounds, you know, sometimes it sounds sort of esoteric and disconnected from the relevance of everyday life, right? He says, no matter how fancy a doctrine sound, sounds, it was a human experience first. The doctrine of the divinity of Christ, for instance. The place it began was not in, on the word processor of some fourth century Greek theologian, but in the experience of basically untheological people who had known Jesus of Nazareth and found something happening in their lives that had never happened before. Unless you can somehow participate yourself in the experience that lies behind the doctrine, simply to subscribe to it doesn't mean much. Sometimes, however, simply to subscribe to a doctrine is the first step towards experiencing the reality that lies behind it. Behind it. Well, that's why we've encouraged you to read your Bible, to find a plan, even if it's a five-day plan. Just bite off something you can chew. It's not too late. It's never too late. To get into the hidden architecture of the universe, the universal truths and goodness and beauty of the original creation to get at that. God has revealed it in his son. He's given us a picture that's worth a thousand words, but he's given us thousands of words that describe the picture. Get at it, get to it. You have a song to sing. We're not gonna sing it beautifully right off the first beat. But don't let your music die in you. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, Many people die with their song still inside them. Think of that. Susan Boyle, Charles Eliot, ordinary people leading extraordinary lives, drawing out the song that echoes in eternity. The beauty we're invited into. The goodness we're called to reflect the truth in which we train to lead changed lives. Let's pray together. Holy God, how we thank you. That there are singers and there is the song. We confess our singing is often faint and out of tune. We pray that you would draw us in reorder our lives and loves and train us to bear fruit of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.